The following audio content is a talk from Convergence, a service for young adults at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at upc.org forward slash young adults. I don't want to enter in here as some sort of uh, great authority on the subject of, of God and the city and, and the theology of the city. Um, I'm starting the journey. And this is an invitation for you to come alongside me and alongside one another as we begin to explore, really, what does it mean to be a Christian Seattleite? Is it, is it just, oh, I'm a Christian and I happen to be hanging out in Seattle? Or could it be that God has me here for a reason? And could that reason possibly be something eternal? And uh, this subject is going to uh, interact with your contexts very specifically. And so I'm going to share from mine. And it's going to be pretty obvious where I'm coming from. The work that I've done has been with the mentally ill and the poor. And that's going to come across. Um, I don't really know anything about political or corporate America or really (laughs) any other uh, professional spheres. So your job is to take uh, the material here tonight uh, and and as I'm talking about it, be thinking about it and be thinking, how, how does this translate into the job that I have, into the calling that God has given me, into the neighborhood that I live in, into the people that I circulate with. Um, And then hopefully that's going to be the substance of our our conversation later. Um, Because really this is just, uh, for me, this is about kind of the last year or two in which God has uh, come to me with a lot of revelation. He's really revealed a lot of his heart to me regarding the city and he's uh, opened my eyes to a larger vision, and he has slowly been growing my heart and my comfort zone to the point where I have found myself in positions and situations and doing things that I never would have believed myself capable of uh, a year or two ago. And far from this being disconcerting or scary, this is deeply joyful. And so it is into that joy and that excitement, uh, that adventure that I'm inviting you. So if we're going to talk about God in the city, uh, it behooves us to start at the beginning in the garden. And I think that one of the, one of the questions that first got me thinking about this uh, was one day um, I was having a conversation and um, I was actually with a college youth group that I was helping to lead. I was an intern at, at a church up north. And the question came up, if humanity started in paradise and that paradise was a garden, and that garden was lost through human vanity and the human belief that we would rather stand on our own two feet in desolation than in paradise in God's arms. If that's the case, and if all of human history is God fixing that problem and bringing us back to himself, why is it then that heaven is a city? Why is it then that we read Revelation and we don't hear about a garden? We hear about a city, impossibly large, large enough to fit every human being who's ever lived. If if we left perfection and we're going back to it, why is it not innocent nakedness in a garden? Why is it institutions? Why is it called a kingdom? Why are there there people that have, have names above other names, hierarchy, clothing, all these things that we associate with human culture, human invention? Why aren't we going back to the beginning? And that really got my mind thinking about, well, if that's the case, and I believe it to be true because it's in the Bible, what does that mean for me? Uh, I've been a lifelong city dweller. I don't plan on moving out. Um, So 
we are moving to this heavenly city from obviously our current more and more and more urban context. Um, and so I'm going to read to you very briefly the vision of the city that we are given from John, uh, the Apostle John in Revelation. So this is Revelation 21, 1 through 16. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. He also said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And in the Spirit, he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It has the glory of God and a radiance like a very rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It has a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates, twelve angels. And on the gates are inscribed the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. On the east, three gates, the north, three gates, the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city has twelve foundations, and on them are the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its, and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. The word of the Lord. That's a very interesting depiction of a city. And uh, I'm certainly not asking you to take this as a literal snapshot. That's not what it's meant to be. Uh, when John was writing Revelation, he's got a lot of imagery, a lot of symbolism, a lot of... Um, it's almost code. It's, it's very metaphorical. It's meant to draw your mind to other things. And I don't want to get hung up on the architectural plan for the heavenly city because, no, we don't know exactly what it's going to be like, and frankly, it's irrelevant. The point is this is a huge city. This is a big city. This is the kind of place where literally every person who has ever lived can stay together. And what does that mean? What does that mean that God has described the culmination of history and his work with us as a giant city? This is, this is a departure from what our concept of heaven is. We often think of heaven as um, disembodied spirits just kind of floating around this glowing orb that is God and a general 
crazy noise going on. Or, or we think of Looney Tunes. We think of Looney Tunes where whenever the uh, coyote gets, uh, blows himself up, he winds up on a cloud in a smock with a tin ring on his head with a coat hanger, and he's playing a harp. I mean, this is the pop culture image that we have of heaven, and that's not what it is. This is not alien abduction. This is not like, oh, this world is lame and it's awful and it's completely lost cause, but, but you have believed in me and so as a reward, I'm just going to pluck you out of it and I'm going to carry you to an alternate dimension which isn't screwed up and I'm going to plant you there. That's not heaven. That's not what God does. Neither is it annihilation. It's not, oh, this is, this is an evil creation. It, it failed me. It fell short, which it did. But now in my vengeance and mightiness, I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to start over from scratch. I'm going to take your soul, because you've been good, and I'm going to inject it into your entirely new body in an entirely new universe after I've wasted this one. That's not it either. God is, God is the redeemer. He takes what is, fallen and broken though it may be. He takes you as you are. And then he says, you, you are who I am accepting. You, as you are. Now, I'm going to refine you. And that is the accurate image of where we are going as Christians in salvation is to a, a perfected uh, version of ourselves, ourselves as we always should have been. We will then be that and much, much more. We're not going to be replaced by some sort of kind of superhuman, super moral equivalent of ourselves that is waiting for our souls to inhabit somewhere. That's, that's a popular view, but it's wrong. And so now, after we kind of divorce our minds from this idea of either God's going to destroy everything and start over again, which, by the way, he made a covenant with us not to after he flooded the earth. He said, all right, I'm done destroying my creation. I'm just going to redeem it from now on. Um, that was a tangent. <laughs> Anyhow, that, that's, that's not going that's, <laughs> to... That's not going to be how it is. And so once we get our minds away from this idea of us leaving our bodies behind and just teleporting off to somewhere else, once we get rid of that idea, we also have to get rid of the idea that somehow this is irrelevant. Somehow this is all going to come to an end. I mean, why should I care about Seattle? In a couple hundred years, there's not going to be a Seattle, or Seattle's going to be really different. In like 10,000 after that, there's not even going to be a memory of Seattle. And by the time heaven comes, the earth is going to be drastically different. So why should I care? The truth is that God's promise of salvation is not simply to the souls of humankind. God says, I will save all of creation. Look, I am making all things new. He is taking what is and making it new. And that includes Seattle, or whatever vestiges of it will be central to whatever replaces it. These human cities, these human institutions, things like kingdoms and empires won't be gotten rid of. They will be renewed. This is, this is not uh, abduction or annihilation. This is adoption and inheritance. And I'm going to read real quick from Luke, uh, just to say that this adoption and inheritance is not in the way that we conceive of it. We conceive of our families genetically, but this is not how God conceives of the eternal family that's going to inhabit New Jerusalem. Luke 8, 19 through 21. 
Then Jesus' mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside waiting to see you. But he said to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. That's your family. That's your family that is going to be in heaven long, long after you've forgotten the name or even the existence of atheist Uncle Bill. You're going to be tight with someone who in this life you have never met before. And that's how we need to start conceiving of the population of heaven as a family. And we also need to conceive of heaven as a kingdom of God that is moving into this world, transforming this world. And this ceases to be a throwaway city. uh, Any city ceases to be a throwaway city. It becomes an inheritance. You're not going to neglect the property of a parent, are you? Because you could could inherit it. If anything, you're going to start fixing it up now. The same principle applies here. If we are to inherit this city, if we are to inherit this earth, and if people walking around us out in the world and at work are about to be our family, why not get to know them now? Why not start to dig into the city now and invest in it now, make it better now? Start doing the kingdom's work before the kingdom is entirely here. Kind of get on the bandwagon uh, before it's cool to be on the bandwagon. This all comes from a human tendency to, to, to come together. There's a natural, innate human drive to come together into community. And it's obvious. I mean, obviously we're here. We're pack animals. And this is not accidental. This is not a, a product of, of some survival mechanism. This is the image of God. It says... The Bible says that we are created in the image of God. Well, what does that mean? It means a whole ton of things. But in there, it means community. Because God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. He has inside of himself a community. So people that he makes in his image thrive in community. We are unhealthy without it. He has also put in us his creative bent. God loves to create And he honors our creations. He honors culture. He honors art. He honors institutions. He honors things like cities. He honors human achievement. And so when salvation comes, it's not God saying, all right, we're done with all your stuff. I'm implementing mine. He's saying, your stuff is good. Your nations are good. Your empires are good. But instead of being obsessed about power and self-preservation, Now they're going to be looking towards me, and they're going to be the empires and the nations that they always should have been. But the flip side of that coin is that if the kingdom moves in and approaches our institutions and cleanses them and makes them good as they always should have been, well, what happens to the stuff about our institutions that's bad? Obviously, it gets pushed out. And that's the part that becomes uncomfortable, because that's judgment. And we're like, oh, oh, Mark, you can preach about anything. You can't preach about judgment, because that's not PC. The thing that we don't realize about judgment is that God's a freight train, and he's on his way. So it's either jump on or get bowled over. The kingdom is coming into this reality, and things that do not mesh with it are pushed out. As it transforms everything, we see this in ourselves. As we grow closer to God and God transforms us, our bad behaviors, our failures, our weaknesses, to some extent, all of them start to be pushed out. And we begin to realize that when we enter into Christ's perfection, which is our our goal, I mean, none of us are going to get it now, but 
we will. All those things, those are the parts of us that will pass away. Those are the parts of us that have been judged. And I think that that C.S. Lewis really put it best when he said that heaven is when humans say to God, thy will be done. And hell is when God says to humans, thy will be done. The thing about judgment is this. Hell's a choice. And if the kingdom is coming and the invitation is open, come, live in me. This is an invitation. If you say, all right, God, okay. I see that you're moving in, but there's just not enough room in this town for the two of us, so I'm going to leave. That's judgment. Because town, where God is, is heaven, and literally everywhere else is hell. So what does it mean then when the kingdom moves into this city and pushes out all the sin and all the darkness while at the same time keeping in literally every positive contribution and every positive potential that all of us and all of our institutions and even our very buildings have. There's a a certain sacredness to that that I find much more appealing and it, it even makes a lot more sense than this kind of silly idea of us just being plucked out of everything that we've worked so desperately hard to create and then told, oh, poor humans, this is how it was always meant to be. You failed. So really, even more than a theology of the city, this is more a theology of family. And that is that over the past uh, couple of years, through this idea of family, God has been drastically expanding my knowledge of what the kingdom is and, and has been speaking into my heart to grow my vision and to grow my compassion in ways that I didn't think that he would. And so very simply, the kingdom, uh, since I've been throwing around this word kingdom a lot, and for those of you who haven't grown up speaking Christianese your whole lives, the kingdom refers to the reign of Christ, which we associate its culmination with heaven, but it's begun as of 2,000 years ago, and is picking up steam. So I'm going to describe the kingdom for you, and I'm going to put it in family context. The kingdom is its values. It's not a place in the concept that we give like, oh, England is a kingdom. I can point to it on a map. No, the kingdom of God is its values. And I believe these values are three. And the first one is that God has your back. Really and truly, he loves you very much, he has your back, and that is an invitation for you to trust him. He's essentially saying, I created you, I know your needs, I love you very, very much. Don't you think that I'm going to look out for you? And we say, oh no, God, oh no, I want to desperately hold on to this illusion of security that I've been carrying around with me. And it's literally nothing. We're literally grasping at nothing and so focused on it and ourselves that we entirely miss out on the lavishness of God's providence. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and bore you less by uh, making this personal. Um, as Carly said, I just graduated from Princeton this last uh, spring. Yes. And so like everybody from Princeton, I was, I was just had this mantle of pride set on me. I don't know how many of you hung out with people from Princeton, but, I mean, we're, we're kind of a big deal. <laughs> And uh, so, I, you know, I, I'm sitting there facing like the last month or so of my education, and I realize, oh, man, that diploma's almost up on the wall. 
I want to serve Jesus. I better go out and find me a job. How could that be hard, man? I just graduated from Princeton. <laughs> I mean, let's be real. Most prestigious Presbyterian institution in, like, the world. That's got to have some cred. So I thought, oh, man, all right, all I have to do is just, just put my nose to the grindstone and work and just fill out these applications and find opportunities. And obviously, the one that seems best, I'm going to get. Why not? I've got great grades. Um, and that's, that's, that's kind of how it turned out. I worked my butt off to secure my dream job, which was I, was, I, I had an internship, which I'll talk about later, the year before, and it's a missionary organization that works on the street. So this is not quite the glamour and wealth that a lot of Princeton grads have in their eyes upon graduation, but this was more kind of the, the, the kind of more, um, the humble, and I say that with quotes because it's really pride, the humble Christian's version of that is, oh, no, 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 no. I don't want to work for a church that's going to pay me. That's worldly. No. I'm going to be a missionary on the street because I'm from Princeton. Kind of a big deal. And so I got this job. And, and they're, they're, they're wonderful people, this organization. And I had it all lined up. And it was security. It was not financial security. I knew that going in. I didn't want financial security. Although it kind of was in a way since other people were responsible for me. It was, it was kind, of, kind of like being at home except without parents. Um, and so I thought, oh, man, I've got this job lined up. It's perfect. It's going to use my skills. I know where I'm going. <sighs> now I can relax. Obviously, I wasn't looking to God for, for any sort of concept of security or even direction. I was like, okay, God, now that I've got my education, I'm going to go serve you. There was never any sort of like, oh, well, God, now that I've got my ed- education, what do you want me to do? So I came home, and I suffered the temporary ignominy of living in my parents' basement. And I, for the convenience of it, chose a pretty good summer job working at the kiosk downstairs that, you know, like barely $1,000 a month. But, hey, that's cool because I'm going to move out and I'm going to be a street missionary because I'm from Princeton. And God kind of, he flipped things on me because all of these things that I would never have accepted, not in a million years, if I thought they were permanent, oh, man, they became permanent real quick. My, my temporary residence in my parents' basement, still there. My uh, summer temp job down at the desk, you can roll in here just about any day of the week. I'll say hi. If you call in, I'm the dude answering the phone. All this stuff became very, very, very permanent uh, for me and, and looks like it's going to be for a while. And that was God basically saying, yeah, Mark, you have worked hard and you have a heck of an education, which, by the way, I gave you. And now you're going to learn how to trust me and you're going to learn how to live with enough because, no, I did not have as much as I wanted in terms of a job that was befitting the prestige of a Princeton graduate. No, I did not have a lot of money. Yes, I was living at home. But I have enough. And not only do I have enough, I found I had a whole lot to bless people with and in ways that I didn't think before because I kind of had to start thinking outside the box. We start to think, oh, how am I going to bless people? Oh, I have to give money to a cause. Well, when you don't have any money and you still want to bless people, you kind of have to think outside the box. And so I had, I had to let go of my illusion of security in order to start living into the idea that, well, you know what? 
clearly my life is not in my own hands because I worked my butt off to get this job. I had it all ironed out. Like everything was perfect until it just blew apart. So clearly I'm not in charge of my destiny. I'm on the God train. I might as well see where it goes. And so the second value of the kingdom was revealed to me after that. And that is that when you are no longer obsessed with self-preservation, when you are no longer looking in at your own affairs and your own orders and your own bookkeeping and saying, man, am I going to have enough? How am I going to reach these goals that I have set for myself? How am I going to get the career that I have envisioned? How am I going to live up to the piece of parchment on my wall in a $175 frame that says, Scole Theologicae Pristoniensis Divinitatis Magistrum? How am I going to live up to that? It's a mouthful. But once you're done with that, once you're past all that garbage, you can then see things that, that you, that, that with your eyes down here, you never would have seen them before. And that is that when you sacrifice your allegiance to the illusion of security, God will open you up to relationship. At least He did for me. He opened my eyes up to relationship in ways that I never would have guessed. Working down there at the desk, I thought, I mean, I mean I'm a nice guy, so it's not like I spent the summer alienating people. But, I, you know, I certainly wasn't digging as deep as I could. And yet people came to me, and people invested in me. And I found over the course of the summer that I started to build substantive relationships with the street kids down there. 75% of my job, like literally 75% of the time that I'm down there, I'm kicking at the street kids, usually keeping them from... Tearing apart the furniture. And they are some cool people when you get to know them. And was it a little bit weird first? Yeah. And this is coming from a guy who had already done street ministry. It challenged my comfort zone in ways that I didn't expect. And when that job all of a sudden became very permanent, I started to realize maybe it's for this reason that God brought me back home. Maybe this kind of glamorous, you know, super Christian missionary street job over here, wasn't what God had in mind because he'd rather me actually work with kids on the street here where it isn't set up and where it's not expected. And that was a blessing that I never expected it to be. I never expected to be blessed by friends from the street. I mean, how could they? What do they have for me? But, oh man, they've got a lot. Friendship doesn't need money. And that kind of opened me up to the third and final value that I think summarizes what the kingdom is about. And that is that once you're in love with a person, once you love someone and have relationship with them, that love will call you and it will motivate you to self-sacrifice. And when it does, God will show up and he will give you what you need to share. You will recognize a need in someone who you care about. You will want to meet the need. You will not have the means, but then God will give it to you. And it is obvious that God is blessing you to bless others more than yourself. And that, that is the providence of God. That is God showing up. And that has been my last year. And that's been big. That totally makes it worth it. I'll live at home any day. So then the question becomes, well, what does it look like? If these are the values of the kingdom, um, don't be so obsessed about yourself. Once you're not obsessed about yourself, you're going to start noticing other people. And once you have friends with other people, you're, you're going to care about them and, and act on that. What does it look like to actually embody these values and live them out? 
And, and that's kind of been the more recent discovery of this. And first, uh, I mentioned this before, don't have a lot of money. Making less than $12,000 a year, but it's enough. How do I look at my resources to bless people? Do I, do I look at my bank account and say, oh man, I don't know if I can bless anybody. There's not enough zeros behind that one. <laughs> you know? And the truth is, you don't need money to bless people. I can safely say that I've been a blessing to my friends this year, and I've gained a lot more friends this year. It's simple. I love board games. I'm a huge nerd, in case you don't know. Um, I love board games, and I throw game nights all the time. And I have my friends over, and it's a blast. And I have cultivated friendships with people that I barely knew existed, and I have seen other people develop friendships between themselves because they've hung out at my game nights and the parties that I've thrown, and that is a blessing. It is cheap to send a Facebook that says, BYOB, my house. All you have to do is provide the music, which, you know, thanks for piracy, is cheap too. (laughs) Don't do it. (laughs) Have you ever seen those ads at the beginning of movies, you wouldn't punch a baby. You wouldn't rob a car. You wouldn't commit acts of international terrorism. Don't steal this movie. And it's like, ah, there's a disconnect there. Sorry, that was a tangent. I got distracted. But more to the point, I didn't need money to bless people. And it turned out that what little I had was more than enough to make a whole lot of people have a whole lot of fun. And you might say, oh, come on, Mark, just helping people have fun. That's not ministry. That's not kingdom work. I disagree. Most of the people there were Christians. And a whole bunch of the people there that weren't Christians, guess what they found out? What? Christians know how to party? What? Christians are cool? What? It was cool to just see their heads explode. And so, that brings me to my next point, which is uh, what it looks like when... You view all of your resources not simply as means of getting me to where I need to go. And see, don't get me wrong, this is not a judgmental thing. For Christians, at least at least for me when I was growing up, part of me needing what I need to get me to where I want to go included helping people. Because I'm like, oh, part of my Christian walk is to help people. And I'm going to be a helpful guy. And so I need all this money from you, God, to be able to then help people to get to the job that I want, which is you know my dream career, so that then I can help people. And we plug in helping people into all different parts of this timeline for the sake of legitimizing it, when at the end of the day, it's just really all about us. So, once we begin looking at all of our stuff, not just our money, but our stuff, just anything that we happen to have as all gifts from God that aren't meant to stop with us, not one single thing that God has given you is meant to stop with you. It has to go from you to someone else. You can't hoard it. Once we have that firmly fixed in our heads, we can begin to look at other people, not just as friends and certainly not just as strangers, but an awfully big family. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this I looked and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. 
that's from the part of Revelation where John says, Behold, I saw like 144,000 people, and they were from this tribe of Israel, and this tribe of Israel, and this tribe of Israel. And you're like, great, God's only going to save the Jews. And then he's like, but after that, I saw a crowd so vast you couldn't possibly count them. And guess what? It's Gentiles. That's me. I don't know if anybody out here is Jewish. Great, I'm a Gentile. I'm pretty happy to be in that giant uncountable crowd. The truth is, everybody in that crowd is your brother and sister, quite literally. These brothers and sisters in Christ, you are going to get to know, personally. He said, that's an awful lot of people. Well, eternity is an awful lot of time. As I said, after, you know, atheist Uncle Bill has ceased to exist in your mind, you're going to be friends with someone on the other side of the world who lived, I don't know, 200 years ago, 300 years in the future, it doesn't matter. They're going to be your tight friend. And once I got that in my head, I began to think, well, how can I invest in these people? I mean, if you guys are my brothers and sisters, sure, I can throw a game night every now and again or a cool party and I can facilitate your fun. But how do I invest in you? How do I invest in our relationship together, yours and mine? And that's a pretty intimidating thing because we can say all the pithy things that we want to, but when it actually comes to walking up to somebody and trying to invest in a relationship, it's awkward. And like, I'm an extrovert, but I'm I'm not just going to walk up to Michael and say, Michael, you know what? I just don't feel that our friendship has progressed far enough. And I think that, um, I think we should hang out. You want to do that? Yeah, cool. Um, and, and even if you were to do that one person at a time, it would take you forever. So how do you begin the journey of deepening these relationships? And the answer, obviously, like everything in church, is prayer. And now I'm going to take you back to this internship that I had, which is with this organization that works with people on the street. It's called Interchange. Very cool. Look them up online. Inner, inside, not inter. Interchange, one word. Look them up. They're awesome. But I had an internship with them in L.A., and uh, we were in the Westlake neighborhood, which is the uh, most crowded neighborhood in the United States. Um, If you've seen Training Day, the video with Denzel Washington, that's the neighborhood. So it's the ghetto. Um, About three square miles. And over the course of the summer, over eight weeks, the other intern and I together prayed on each and every street and alley in that neighborhood. We walked up the streets and we prayed for the people we passed. And we'd see the same people all the different days that we do it. We do it two or three days a week. We prayed for the people we saw. We prayed for the institutions that we saw at work. We even prayed for the buildings because the buildings there are just terrible. But some of them are very good. So we'd either thank God for the good buildings or ask God to preserve the weaker buildings, keep them standing. I mean, we all know earthquakes happen down there. A lot of those buildings actually have plaques on them saying this building is like fatally unsafe in an earthquake, and yet there's hundreds of people living in them because they can't afford to live anywhere else. We started to invest in prayer in that. We actually prayed for the streets. God, keep these streets safe today. Watch over the people that cross them. Don't let anybody get hit. Keep the cars safe that drive over them. And you might say, oh, well, you know, what is that actually accomplishing? The truth is that Prayer is inviting God into a conversation. And when you invite God into a conversation that is between you and the actual material existence that surrounds you, that's that's the kingdom. <laughs> that's the kingdom entering our reality, literally, right there. So when you begin to think of people as your larger family, and you begin to pray for them, 
pray for them in every way conceivably possible. Begin with, begin with small things. If you're walking around praying, people look them in the eyes you're praying to them. And maybe they're going to be weirded out a little bit. That's okay. But start looking at them as your brother and your sister, really and truly. Looking at them as your brother and your sister. Now for me, this involves walking around on the streets outside. That's where I spend a lot of my time. But for you, who some of you might have jobs in corporate America, I don't know anything about what that's like. Uh, I've never even been in a building like that. I don't know what cubicle life is like. But I'm sure that you interact with a lot of people. What would it look like for you to start interacting with them as though you're going to know them for a couple thousand years? Think about that. And the idea behind this sort of thinking is that you are going to extend your network of friends. We have, we have a family that, that we conceive of genetically. Toss that idea. Your friends are now your family just as, just as much as those who have a genetic bond to you. That's your family. So now there's that network. It's like a spider web. How do you extend a line from it? One at a time. One at a time. How do you bring someone into the web? One at a time. Grow the web. More and more connections, one at a time, one at a time. Obviously, starting with the people closest to you. You don't need to find someone random to start this with. If anything, that's going to be awkward and more doomed to failure. Start with someone who's almost your friend. Make them your friend. And then start working on people that you haven't met yet. Just extend this network of friendship, one person at a time. And they're going to come into contact with you, with the things that you believe. And someone can tell. When you begin to love them and when you begin to love this person as your brother or your sister, it's going to show. And they're going to start asking you why. Because it's weird for people to love outside their family. It's provocative. It's very weird, especially on the East Coast. So third, this this kind of thinking about the kingdom... Um, has also changed the way that I interact with institutions, and it will with you. Very simply put, when you begin caring about a person, you begin caring about the things that affect them. And in this world, that's mostly various institutions. And here's institutions as we do them, and institutions as Christ would have us do them. Mark 10, 35-45, about a couple of arrogant pricks. <laughs> And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, that is Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. Don't you love that when somebody's like, dude, promise me that you're going to do this. I'm not telling you what it is until you promise. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, what do you want me to do? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized with? That's crucifixion, by the way. And, of course, they say, we're able. And Jesus says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. It's just kind of an ominous word for us now uh, in hindsight. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them together, called them to him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, which literally means oppress them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. 
but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man, that is Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's a good institution. Begin to think, well, what institutions am I plugged in with? And I don't know the answer for you. Some of you work for various corporations. I don't know. Maybe some of you actually work in the government, have state jobs. I don't know the level of responsibility that you've been given. So really all I can do is tell you how I've interpreted this in my own life. I mean, I work at the kiosk. I'm not a a person who's going to lord it over anybody. But I saw an opportunity to change an institution, and I took it. And that is that before coming here, UPC didn't have any policy any uniform policy for dealing with homeless guests. There was nothing. It was just everybody was kind of up up to their own discernment, how they wanted to deal with homeless people. And you have your people that are just afraid, desperately afraid of homeless people, and they would be hard on them, and they'd be harsh. And you've got your people that have really big hearts, but they might be a little bit naive, and they they let the, the homeless kids just walk all over them. And you've got people all in between, and there's terrible confusion because there's no cohesive vision for what it means to welcome people into the church who happen to live on the street. And I saw the problems that that was causing, and I saw that the homeless kids thought that UPC was a thing to be exploited because it obviously didn't care about them. It was just dumb enough to open its doors. And so I wrote the policy that UPC now has in place for homeless guests, engaging everyone in one effort to try and swing this institution around from being cold towards homeless people to being warm towards them, because God knows we're the church. And it has been such a gift to see that what took me a couple weeks on a computer has turned into an institutional mandate, a way of doing things that has already had significant impact. Kids come up to me and say, you know, for the first time in a long time, UPC is a warm place to me. I feel welcome here. Or many of them, oh, it's not so bad around here as it used to be. That's improvement. I'll take what I can get. But that's the thing. That was just an opportunity. It was just something that opened up in front of me, and it seemed like God was saying, well, no one's going to do it. You might as well. And I took it. I've never written a policy before. I don't know how it's done. You can read it, see if it sounds good. I don't know. But it works. So think about it like that. Where do you work? What can you possibly do? Is there something you can volunteer to do that's going to have positive impact on anyone? Well, then you should do it, no matter who they are. And another way that you can impact institutions, I think one of the greatest institutions in this country is voting. Now, I know that you're not supposed to tell people how to vote in church, but I'm a big believer in following the Spirit, and I believe in this hard. And that is that there has has been time and time again, I'm a lifelong Seattleite, time and time again there has been pressure to increase bus fare. And uh, I'm, I generally am a conservative guy, so I think, oh, shoot, all right, you know, why should people who drive cars pay for the bus they don't use? I mean, theoretically, you should pay for the service that you use, right? Well, seems fair. But then, I, but then exa- I started to make friends with these homeless kids. I started to see life through a different set of lenses, and... 
When I started to care about them, I started to care about the institutions that affected them. And that's when I realized that when you raise the bus fare a dollar or 50 cents or whatever, you and I say, dang, man, really? (sighs) Another dollar? A homeless kid says, I have to walk. And when you have your remedial high school program in downtown and you're sleeping in a shelter in the U District, you have to wake up early to walk to school. And when you get to school, you're pissed off and you're tired and you are not prepared to learn. And if I sound a little bit exercised about this, it's because I am. Because when I heard that, I was just frustrated with myself and my short-sightedness before. And I began to realize, here's an institution that I have, albeit an infinitesimal amount of an impact on, but I do have a little bit. And for what it counts, when it comes to bus fare, I know that the people that get pinched are the poor. And now that I've seen it through their eyes, now that my care for them has caused me to interact with an institution differently, it's going gonna, it's gonna to dictate how I vote on that issue. And so I'm not telling you how you should vote, but think of it like that, that when you bring friends into your inner circle, especially people that come from totally different contexts, be careful because it's going to open up your eyes and you're going to see some stuff that might be uncomfortable for you. But in my experience, uncomfortable, though many of these things have been, they have all been deeply good. Fourth and finally... Uh, point for how things changed for me when I started to examine these three values of the kingdom not being so stuck on your own position and inviting relationship and then realizing that you have to make sacrifices for others. Uh, the fourth point here is, is when I actually realized personally that it was going to involve sacrifice on my end. John 15, 9-17 As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends." You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. You and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name he may give you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. We didn't choose Christ. Christ chose us. And I was given the opportunity a couple weeks ago to respond to a choice in my heart. I've gotten to know a bunch of homeless kids downstairs, and two of them I've come to love. And I was given the opportunity to choose them. And I did. And... It just started to hurt me that they were on the street. It makes me sad that people are on the street. But for these two, it pissed me off because I care about them. And of all the people that I've met on the street, they are two people that are working their 
butts off to get their life in order, and the gravity of the street's just too strong to let them go. They just need a little push in the right direction, and they're going to be in charge of their lives. They're not going to screw up. They're responsible. But they don't have anyone to believe in them. And it made me mad. And so I was having dinner with a guy, and he just put it on me. He says, Mark, you got to adopt them. And here's me thinking, I make less than $12,000 a year. What am I going to do with these kids? But he put it on me nonetheless. He said, you adopt these kids because they deserve that chance, and you can help them. And that's when I began to realize that my conscience wouldn't permit me to do otherwise. I care about these kids personally. I care about their destiny. I cannot allow this thing to happen to them. I don't know what risk I'm going to have to take. I don't know what I'm going to have to give up. But I'm going to do something about them being on the street. And so now I'm in the process of meeting with a ton of people to try and rent a house with some friends that they can live in with me. And all kinds of people are telling me, dude, don't do it. Live with homeless people? Are you kidding? You're going to wake up one day with all your crap gone. Maybe. But you know what? I care enough about these kids to find out. And as I've come to care about them, I've come to trust them. And I know that, man, there's a lot of kids out there that are screw-ups. It's true. But they're not. And I wouldn't, I would never have done this a year ago. I would have said, oh man, I'd live on the street with these kids. But would I have risked my property? Would I have brought them into my own home? Heck no. But I'm not asking you to do that either. If some random guy walked up to me and said, oh, I'm down on my luck. I need to crash at your place. I'd say, no, I don't know you. I don't know your story. I don't know what you're addicted to. I want my stuff to be gone in the morning. But I know these two kids and I care about these two kids. And so I'm going to live with these two kids. They are my brother and my sister. And if you get to know someone who's a brother and a sister, how many of you would not allow a brother and a sister who's on hard times to crash in your basement for a while until they get their feet under them? You'd do that for your family. Well, once you divorce genes from your definition of family, you're going to find that your love for people is going to call you to do some crazy stuff for people that before you never would have. And that's where the pinch is coming for me. That's where I'm beginning to learn. I'm only starting this. I'm beginning to learn what it means to actually put my money where my mouth is. So basically, this last year, God just blew my mind. Opened my vision considerably in just the people that I encountered with. I started this last year working at a psych hospital on the East Coast with a bunch of... uh, uh, people that had been uh, convicted but uh, rendered, uh, declared uh, not guilty due to insanity and a bunch of sex offenders. That was just an odd crew of people to hang out with for a whole year, but I did. And then coming out here and hanging out with the kids off the street, I saw a lot of similar things. And instead of disgusting me, all that brokenness called me. And it called me to do things that I did not expect that I would have done. A year ago, I would never, ever, ever have accepted this challenge. But now that this challenge has a face and a couple of names and some stories that I know and care about, this challenge is something that I eagerly accept. And it is my hope and my prayer for you that you will poke and prod your comfort zone. This did not happen to me overnight. It took a whole year. Poke and prod your comfort zone. Push it out one person at a time one interaction at a time, one act of service at a time. Stretch that comfort zone, and you will find that some pretty crazy stuff starts to fit in it. There's three different ways that 
you can do this. First of all, each and every one of you is gifted in some fashion. I recognize my gifts. I have the patience and the understanding to hang out with some pretty intense personalities. I do not take that for granted, and I'm thankful for it. That's the gift that I bring. But you all have incredible gifts. Put them to use. Put them to use here and in the world. If you want to have someone to challenge you, Dr. Carly. She'll find a way to hook you up. A great example of this is Kyle and the band. Those guys are going to start playing outside church. A church band playing secular places? What? It's going to happen. And it's going to be awesome. Why? Because they're great at music. They have a gift. Why should we keep it to ourselves? Why should they keep it in the church, they say? Great argument. Go play bars. They're going to. That's going to be interesting. A Christian band in bars. What gift do you have? Bring it here and then export it. Number two, get involved with the service teams and service nights. That's why we have them. Once again, talk to Carly. It's very simple. We set this stuff all up all the time for community groups. They're, they're fun things. This is not risky. Going to Hearthstone and playing board games with old people might push and prod your comfort zone a little bit, but that is a low-risk environment. Believe you me. Okay? <laughs> And once your comfort zone has been sufficiently expanded that hanging out with old people is no longer awkward for you, maybe it's time to turn up the danger meter a little bit and go to SYM, go to a drop-in, hang out with some homeless kids, eat some pizza, hear a story. Man, they've got stories. And do what challenges you. By the way, this is not supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be fun, but it's not supposed to be easy. If you're not uncomfortable, you're not working hard enough. Stick it to yourself. It actually becomes kind of fun to just say, oh, man, that was so uncomfortable. Oh, that was awesome. I actually felt my comfort zone shift. It was intense. It becomes kind of an adrenaline thing. And number three is that God will meet you when you do this. When you have the courage to say, I'm not going to do anything crazy today, but, oh, man, I'm going to challenge my comfort zone. God's going to show up right there and say, all right, I'll be here with you. This is going to be awkward. This is going to be tough on you, but I am here with you. I'm here with you with this person that just stinks bad and your eyes are watering. But I am here with you. And I will interpret love to you in this moment. And you will be shocked by the things that he calls your heart to do and by the joy that you find in doing them. God's going to lay a call on you. And far from saying, oh, God, really, please, do I have to? You're going to say, yes. Oh, this is going to be uncomfortable. But yes, I am pumped up. It's been my experience. This has been a very exciting year for me. And I have, I have been the driving force behind literally none of it. My year got waylaid for me the summer I stepped out of Princeton. I had my whole life put together, and that was a joke. So, yeah, I'm living at home in my parents' basement. I'm making less than twelve grand a year at the desk downstairs, and I'm having a blast. And I would invite you to a similar journey in your own contexts. Now that I've gone on long enough, um, I'm going to pray for us a mite bit. I can't see the clock. Um, and then we're going to have a discussion. Hey, what? Sorry, guys. <laughs> this whole thing, this whole thing was for a conversation. <sighs> and then I got wordy. I apologize. Yes, Kate's pub. Yes, we can. Let's talk about Jesus in the city. But in between now and then, I'm going to pray for us. And uh, 
give us a benediction. Doesn't the benediction come at the end? I'm going to benedict at the end. Okay, I'm going to pray for you now. I'll do a benediction later. All right. (laughs) Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for the conversation that this has hopefully started. Lord, you're amazing. And you push us to do some pretty intense things, and you reward us so lavishly and always in ways that we don't expect. Lord God, grant us the courage to one step at a time reach out to the other. Lord, help us to be bold. And help us to remember what it must have been like to send your son down here to live with us. And with that in mind, help us to go live with other people on their life journeys. Thank you so much for the gifts that you've given us. Help us use them in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.